pray together. Father, now in these precious moments that we gather together as your church, we pray your word through your spirit would change our lives so that Jesus Christ might be glorified. In his name we pray, amen. Last week we started our journey down the road of practical holiness. We're endeavoring together to move forward in holiness. Our memory verse is uh, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. So this summer we're kind of working on this verse together. I want us to read the verse together, here together. Let's read together. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Today we're going to be talking about the I am holy part of God's command. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Today we're going to dip a thimble into the ocean of God's holiness endeavoring to understand, to, to even such a small extent, the reality of God's holiness. First note with me something very important about our memory verse. It's a small word, but it has major implications. It's the conjunctive word for. You shall be holy, for I am holy. The word for tells us the reason why God is commanding us to be holy. Why is God commanding us to be holy? Because he is holy. He wants us to reflect who he is. He is holy, so as followers of God, as imitators of Christ, we too are called to be holy. Please note what it doesn't say. You shall be holy as I am holy. If you think of the word as as a comparison, because there's no comparison, Holiness is not a comparison. The command is not to be as holy as God is holy. Why? Because we can't. It's impossible. We cannot be as holy as God is holy. God is holy in all that he does. Everything, every single thought, every single action, every single attitude, complete holiness. We, on the other hand have minuscule fleeting moments of practical holiness. For the vast majority of our thoughts and actions and attitudes are not holy. Why? Because God's character is fundamentally, intrinsically holy, and our character is fundamentally not holy, but rather intrinsically unholy and sinful. This is one of the most important points about our holiness and God's holiness. He is holy. He dwells in holiness. Everything about him is holy. His name is holy. His character is holy. His location is holy. All complete holiness. We, right, not so much. We're sinners. We dwell in the midst of sin. Everything about us is tainted with sin. Sin is the soup in which we swim in. Remember that basic primary definition of holiness, to be set apart, separation. God is so set apart from sin, all sin, any sin, in thought, and deed, and attitude. He is so separate from all iniquity that he is the absolute 
purity. He is moral perfection. He is spotless light. We, again, not so much, right? We're actually imbibed in sin. We're soaked in sin. We're, we're so deep in sin that we actually fear the holiness of God. He is ultimate perfection. We are ultimate imperfection. So let's look together at one of the great passages in the Bible on the holiness of God. So please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And follow along as I read. Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me the holiness of God the Father. God opened the veil of heaven to give Isaiah a glimpse into the throne room. The passage starts with distressing news. The king has died. The nation's in turmoil. The future is uncertain. The prophet Isaiah is being called to his ministry in the midst of uncertain times. So one of the reasons that God has given this vision to Isaiah, this vision of heaven, is to assure him of his calling, to assure him of his power and his glory, of his supreme holiness, of his sovereignty. One of the applications of this passage is that when we truly see God for who he really is, his power, his glory, his holy, his majesty, we are strengthened to live for him even in the midst of uncertain times. His godness gives us hope for our lives and the calling that he has given to each one of us. Isaiah needed that encouragement. Perhaps we do as well. Is life for you in a time of uncertainty? Are, are questions flowing through your thoughts? Where is God? What's his plan? What's going on? The truth is that our Lord is high and lifted up upon a throne, ruling and reigning in our lives, over our lives, over all the lives of all people, sovereign, power, glory, holy. It brings us comfort, strength, encouragement, surety, the challenges of life. See, the vision that Isaiah has of God is of superlative majesty, majesty superlative 
majesty. The Lord is pictured sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. His train fills the heavenly temple. Earthly kings, in their effort to look like kings, will sit on elevated thrones and wearing the most regal of clothes. But this is the vision of the most ultimate king, a high throne lifted up. His garment is so regal it fills the whole temple. Psalm 93.1 says, The Lord reigns, and he is robed in majesty. This is the picture of the Lord, the king, the ruler above all, with real power and real majesty. An earthly king is often surrounded by his attendants, ready at his beck and call to do whatever the king wants. And now our heavenly king here is, is pictured surrounded by his attendants. But they are angels, seraphim. And they are themselves majestic creations of God. Seraphim comes from the word to burn. They have a burning zeal to magnify the Lord And they are probably dazzlingly bright creatures. They are described as having six wings. They use two of their wings to fly. The the seraphim flew around the high and lifted royal throne of God, around the temple filled with his train. We are told with two of their other wings, they have covered their faces. Now, why do they cover their faces? I think because the clear light of God's purity, the power of God's holiness, the splendor of his glory was just too much to look at, even for God's special created angels. He was too wonderful, he's too beautiful, too resplendent to look at. So in humility, in their, in their expression of their unworthiness to the revelation of God in this ultimate scene, they've covered their faces. Makes me think of Moses in Exodus 33 when he asked to see God's glory. God says to Moses, you can't. To totally see me, to totally see my goodness, all of my glory, all of my character would be too much. So what does God do? He places Moses in the cleft of a rock. And he covers him there with his hand, so he can't see him. But at the last possible moment, as the Lord passes before Moses, he removes his hand so that Moses can catch a glimpse, just a refraction of the glory of God. The account continues in Exodus 34, with Moses still on the mountain with God, receiving again the Ten Commandments, God renewing his covenant with Moses, with his people, Moses receiving more revelation from God. Exodus 34, 27 and 28 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance to these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This was a supernatural time where God has revealed himself and his word to Moses and miraculously sustains Moses for those 40 days. Now listen to what happens when Moses comes down from that mountain after those 40 days. Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know 
that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and beheld the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. Moses' face shone because he had been in the very presence of God. And when the people saw the skin of his face shone, when they recognized that Moses had so been with God that the after effect of being with him was so evident and his face shining, how did the people react? They were afraid. They reacted with fear. Think about this. The presence of the after effect of being with God was enough to fill the people with fear. The people feared Moses because he was reflecting the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. The presence of God is that majestic. The presence of God is that amazing. The presence of God is that revealing and that fearsome. We must always balance our understanding of God In our closeness of our relationship with him, we must never lose sight that he is fearsome. He's formidable. He is awe-inspiring. The angels covered their faces. They also, with two of their wings, covered their feet. I think the covering of their feet was a sign of their their service to God, of their humility, out of their reverence to God. They covered their feet. They covered their creatureliness in view of God's holiness. But the main point of the seraphim isn't their posture. The main point of the seraphim is their proclamation. What are they saying? One calls out to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Antiphonally, they're calling out one to another. As one would end, the next would begin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. One of the ways the Hebrew like to show emphasis is to repeat we see that a lot uh, throughout the Bible. In Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, Ezekiel 21, 27, there's a three-peat of words. Paul said, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. Jesus regularly said, verily, verily, I say, or truly, truly, I see. We, we see repetition throughout Hebrew poetry in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. Here, we see this one word repeated, holy. Holy, holy, the power of the emphasis is unmistakable. So powerful is the proclamation of God's holiness that inanimate objects tremble. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. See, God is superlatively holy. God is holy. God is holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is the only attribute so described. God's mercy and grace, God's justice and wrath, God's love and faithfulness are described in beautiful ways throughout the Bible in varying different ways. But you never see mercy, mercy, mercy is the Lord of hosts or love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. His attribute of holiness alone is described in the superlative. 
Some point to God's holiness as being his greatest attributes. Jerry Bridges says, Holiness is used more often as a prefix to his name than any other attribute. Holiness is God's crown. Imagine for a moment that God possessed omnipotence, infinite power, omniscience, perfect and complete knowledge, and omnipresence, everywhere present, but without perfect holiness. Such a one would no longer be described as God. Holiness is the perfection of all of his attributes. His power is holy power. His mercy is holy mercy. His wisdom is holy wisdom. It is his holiness more than any other attribute that makes him worthy of our praise. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is inescapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, all of his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. Holiness isn't part of who God is. God is holy in everything and in every way. So what was Isaiah's response to the vision of God? Woe, right? Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As he's referencing his lips, he's using that as symbolic for his insights, for his heart, for his mind. Uncleanness is what comes out of a person, out of our mouths, from our minds, from our hearts. In the presence of God's holiness, Isaiah was not struck with his humanity. He was not struck by his mortality. He was struck by his impurity. You see, when we see God for who he is, then we clearly can see ourselves for who we are. When we clearly see God for who he is, then we clearly see ourselves for who we are. In the presence of perfect and complete holiness, Isaiah saw himself. In the presence of perfect and complete holiness, we too see our sin. God's holiness exposes our sin. The perfect purity of his being exposes the sinful depravity of our being. And not just woe is me, for I am unclean, but woe is us, all of us, all of humanity. For we all dwell in the midst of unclean people, and we ourselves, in the presence of holiness, with his sinfulness exposed, how does Isaiah respond? With repentance. With repentance, one commentator wrote, the necessary first step of any true confession of sin is having an understanding of the glory and the holiness of Almighty God who rules heaven and earth. 
Isaiah finally understanding the holiness, and it brought him to confession and to repentance, to a level of understanding of his brokenness, so that he knew that he could only be forgiven by the atoning work of God. In his vision, a seraphim with tongs grabs a hot coal off the altar of sacrifice, touches his lips, and saying, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. The forgiveness of sin was not by his own merit. The forgiveness of sin had nothing to do with his own effort. His forgiveness came by understanding who God is holy, who he was, a sinner, and then confessing his sin to God. And then his sin atoned for by the symbolic use of a hot coal from the altar of sacrifice. Folks, today, this day, I implore you to see God for who he truly is. I implore you to see yourself for who you truly are, and I exhort you to confess and to repent and to come to him alone, him only, through the cross, our altar of sacrifice, and have your sins atoned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Perhaps today is your day to come to Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. When next we see the holiness of of Jesus. We see a totally different story, but with amazing similarities and parallels that come to the same conclusion in the New Testament with Peter's interaction with Jesus in Luke chapter 5. Please turn in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 5. Starting at verse 1. In Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, They enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners, to the the other boat, to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
as this account goes, this group of fishermen had just come in from a long night of fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and they've caught nothing. These professional fishermen didn't catch anything. Now they're sitting on the shore cleaning their nets. Jesus is nearby teaching, and the crowds are getting so big and are getting so close that Jesus gets into a boat, one of Peter's boats, puts out a little bit from the land, using the lake and the shore as kind of a natural amphitheater. He taught the people from the boat. When he concludes his teaching, he says to Peter in verse 4, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. First thing Peter says is, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. You see, Peter and Andrew and James and John, these are professional fishermen. They knew all there is to know about fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They had spent their lives on that water fishing. They were part of a family business that had been passed down from father to son. They knew the very best places to catch fish. They knew the very best time to catch fish. They knew the very best tactics to catch fish. What was Jesus' profession? He's a carpenter. Jesus knew all there was to know about being a great carpenter. You can almost hear in Peter's tone a sense of exasperation. I know fishing. We fished all night at the best time, in the best place, with the best tactics, and we caught nothing. Right now is the worst time. We've just cleaned our nets. You want us to go to the worst place to fish out in the deep. But to Peter's credit, what does he do? He says, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. Peter's obedient. He might think he knows better as a professional fisherman, but he's humble. He's obedient. Jesus' command was clear. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. His word was clear, and Peter obeyed. He heard the word, and he obeyed. Perhaps today, that's the simple message you need to hear in your life. Are you obeying the clear commands of God's word? If the Bible says do it, are you humble enough to just simply be obedient and do it? Are there areas in your life right now where you're not obeying God, where you're not being obedient to God's word, and you know it? Well, right now, today, today you can change that. Today you can commit to just like Peter, to simply obey, to humbly do what you know God, through his word, wants you to do. It might be hard. Obey. The Holy Spirit within you will help you. See, Peter takes out his nicely folded and clean nets, knowing that he's going to have to clean them all over again now. What a hassle, right? What an inconvenience. He'd been fishing all night. He'd now heard Jesus preach for some time. He is tired. Wants to go home. He is worn out. Sometimes it's really hard to obey. Peter obeys. And what happens? And when they had done this, 
They enclosed a large number of fish. Their nets are breaking. They call the partners over with their boats. They're filling up both boats with fish, so much so that the boats are beginning to sink. What happens at the wrong place, at the wrong time, with the wrong tactics? Peter hauls in the greatest catch of fish he's ever had in his whole life. The catch is so great, the nets are breaking. The partners are coming. James and John, disciples of Jesus, they fill up their boats too. The boats, these are big boats. They're so full of fish that they're sinking. See, this isn't a good catch. This isn't even a great catch. This is a miraculous, unduplicatable catch of fish. This catch of fish had nothing to do with place and timing and tactics. There was one cause and only one cause for this catch of fish. And it was Jesus. He made it happen. It's a stunning display of his power over creation. It's a shocking demonstration of his godness, of his divinity. Only the God of creation could cause such an amazing catch of fish. Only Jesus, the Son of God, could make this happen. And Peter knew it. He knew this miraculous catch of fish had one cause. It was standing right before him. Jesus Christ. How does he respond in verse 8? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter is broken. He's not celebrating the greatest catch he'd ever had in his professional career. He's not high-fiving his partner saying, Look at all the money, cha-ching, all these fish are going to bring in. Look at all these fish. When confronted with a clear revelation of God, Isaiah cried out, woe is me, for I'm undone. When confronted with a clear revelation of Jesus Christ, Peter cries out, leave me. I can't stand in your presence. I'm a sinful man. Peter is moved by the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his heart. Peter is stirred to the deepest part of his soul. His pride, his pretension, his arrogance, his sinfulness overwhelms his thoughts. He's broken and he's humbled in the very area of his strength. He's been awakened to a new reality about Jesus Christ, which opens up a new reality about himself. He can't even look at Jesus All of a sudden, even in the midst with all these people around, he is in the midst of a personal revelation from God through the Holy Spirit on who Jesus is and who he is. The awesomeness, the power, the divinity of Jesus has been revealed to him in such a powerful way that he's awakened to the sinfulness of his own heart. Peter caught a glimpse of, of the majesty of Jesus Christ, and he fell on his knees in repentance with tears flowing, with his heart breaking, with his head hanging low. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When he clearly saw Jesus for who he is, then he clearly saw himself for who he is. Don't look to yourself 
to see yourself more accurately. Look to Jesus to see yourself more accurately. Has the awesomeness of the perfection, has the awesomeness of the beauty and the holiness of Jesus Christ broken your soul? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? He's not just your friend. He's not just your savior. He is the holy one of God. He is the purest of purest perfection. He's a spotless, sinless lamb. He is awesome in power, commanding nature and the supernatural with just his words. When we see him and we see us, then we see rightly the mighty, impassable gulf in between us. And how do we respond? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Just like for Isaiah, so for Peter. God restores him. With Peter at Jesus' feet broken, what does Peter say? Leave me. Depart from me. What does Jesus say? No way. I can just picture Jesus looking down at Peter, so gently taking Peter's head so they can look directly, face to face, eye to eye, the end of verse 10, Jesus so beautifully says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. What's he saying to Peter? He's saying to Peter, I want you. I choose you. I love you. I have a plan for you. I'm not leaving you. I'm restoring you. I'm forgiving you. I'm renewing you. I want you. See, have you ever been broken by Jesus before? Have you ever come to the end of yourself? Oh, folks, it's in moments of brokenness when we often see most clearly. You know, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were offended by Jesus because they considered themselves as holy already. But the regular people of Jesus' day, they were attracted to Jesus because they knew something. They knew they weren't holy, and they knew that he was. At first, it might seem like the holiness of God, the complete set-apartness of God from sin, the impassable gulf that stands between us and God is there to keep us away from God. But actuality, the very opposite is true. You see, it is his perfect holiness that brings us to the recognition of our sinfulness, that leads us to fall down at his feet in confession and repentance, that brings us life and eternal life and abundant life. Did you catch that? It's the very holiness of God that leads us to life. It's no coincidence that for both of these men, Isaiah and Peter, their commissioning to the ministry came after their revelation to God after their confession and repentance of sin. Dr. Dixon, president of Cedarville University when I was there, had a saying he would say often. He would say, those whom God breaks the most, he uses the most. Don't shy away from experiencing your brokenness in Christ. 
Because it's at those moments when Christ breaks through our brokenness and we experience his love and his grace and his mercy and his calling. Don't you long to be broken by God? Don't you long to be restored by God? I do. Because I long to be used by God. To be a fully devoted, sold out, 100% committed follower of Christ. You have to see Jesus for who he really is. You have to see yourself for who you really are. Then you come in confession and repentance and you find the wholeness and love that can only be ours through the cross of Christ. Then you come for forgiveness and atonement and you find grace and hope that can only be yours through the cross of Jesus Christ. Then you come in emptiness and sin and you find fullness and a response of obedience. You come to the end of yourself and you find your calling, your life in Jesus Christ. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that applies the truth of holiness of God and the holiness of Jesus to our lives. First John, excuse me, in John 16, 8, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to teach us about the holiness of God, to convince us of the righteousness of God, to convict us of our sinfulness, to convince us of God's judgment to come for our sin. Perhaps today that's exactly where you are. Perhaps today, right now, the Holy Spirit is doing that work in your life, convincing you, convicting you, Here's a word of advice. Listen. Listen. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is calling you to. And then do that. Be obedient. It is God's holiness that leads us to life. Let's pray. Father, now we come to you as Isaiah, as Peter, recognizing the impassable gulf, recognizing our sin, recognizing your holiness. We come with nothing to bridge that gulf except the truth of your scriptures of your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, he alone is the atonement. He alone is the bridge. He alone is the life. We thank you so much for that. We pray now in these moments, the quietness, that maybe you're working, maybe you're challenging hearts and lives. Right now, pray to him. Pray. Whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, reflect it back to God. Right now, pray your own words to him. Apply what God is doing through his word in your life.
Jesus, now in the quietness of these moments, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.